Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Professor Paula Orlota, professor of stem cell and regenerative biology at Harvard University and principal faculty member at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. In this episode, we will talk about the wonderful diversity of neurons in the cortex, reprogramming neurons to help treat disease, and the joys of living in both Boston and Italy. All this and more coming up. So we're here with Professor Paula Orlota, a professor of stem cell and regenerative biology at Harvard University and principal faculty member at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Orlota. My pleasure. So first, we'd just like to ask uh, where you grew up um, and how you decided you want to become a scientist. What was your early experience in life and like, and what was your education and exposure to science? That's a very good question. Well, I guess you can tell from my accent that I did not grow up here. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Italy. And so I uh, attended the University of Trieste, where uh-huh. I did a master in biochemistry. And then I did a PhD in the UK in molecular biology before moving to the US and uh, doing a um, postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School and maybe we can talk about it later too. Um, so how did I get into science? I yeah. think that these, I, I, uh, I think that I had something for science from early days because my parents tell me that I could spend hours and hours and hours just looking at tiny little things in the garden even when I was in elementary school. I could just pick up worms and things like that and, and observe them. Uh-huh. Um, so, and I remember even in elementary school for that, you know, the little science that you do in elementary school, um, thinking about processes like why, you know, leaves turn color in the fall and, and things like that. I was fascinated by, by all of this. Yeah. And then um, when I went to high school, uh, I had the privilege and you know, the lack really to have a great science teacher. Um, and he just inspired us. And so there was no way out. I had to try biology yeah. and uh, I, I just loved science in general. And so I, I um, attended the University of Trieste. I ended up doing a master in biochemistry. Um, uh-huh. but, and the bachelor's was really in uh, life sciences and biology. Uh-huh. And then what about biochemistry did you find really interesting at the time within the so, field of biology? That's true. So I'm very happy I did it, but <laughs> I never want to go back again. <laughs> I'm kidding. So um, it's funny because from, from, from when I started the university, I really liked um, certain biological processes. I was really fascinated by the process of development, actually. And so uh-huh. uh, my first thought was to do a master thesis in, in development. But then again, you meet these very charismatic professors that really can inspire to do something a little bit different from what you had imagined. Yeah. And so, um, again, I was very fortunate that um, this uh, um, uh, one professor, professor of biochemistry, welcome me in, in his lab. His name is Professor Giancotti. And, uh, and he really sort of taught me the basics of how to work in the lab and really made me see that beginning with some sort of basic understanding of how molecules interact with each other, how proteins intera- you know, interact. Uh, yeah. It's not a bad way to start and sort of leaves a mark in you as, as you think about much more complex processes later on in life. So I did a thesis in biochemistry and it was really great training. Um, he also yeah. helped me a lot later on 
to allow me, you know, to do a PhD abroad and then come to Boston. So again, you need to meet the right people in life and they, and they, um, real mentors are hard to come about. And I think I had a few. Yeah. That's really great. Okay, so then after your master's in biochemistry, you went on to do a PhD in molecular biology, uh, as you said, from the University of Portsmouth in the UK. So um, what kinds of questions were you interested in then? So at that time, um, uh, I still um, was thinking as, uh, I was thinking as, I guess, as a young biochemist, I never <laughs> pretended to be a, a biochemist, uh, yeah. but I was interested in cancer, and I was interested in um, uh, protein, uh, chromatin um, modulators, important in, in, in cancer, and and so my work was very basic still, um, and uh, uh, again, sort of focused on mechanisms, uh-huh. but at that point, I really realized really fully with a PhD that while that was really nice, I uh, had had this love of development for all my life, right. and it was time to try to uh, to move into a new field. A really tough decision because you have done a master's and a PhD, and and all of a sudden you decide to change field. But I thought that either was then or never, and and so um, with this background of molecular biology and and mechanisms. Uh, I decided I wanted to do development, and not only just development, I was also fascinated by the complexity of the nervous system, now that I understood any of it, <laughs> at least at that time. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was very lucky that I could uh, do a postdoctoral, uh, my postdoctoral training with uh, Jeff Macklis at Harvard Medical School. Yeah. Um, at that time, Jeff had a relatively small lab, um, I was bringing in molecular biology. He could teach me a lot of neuroscience. Uh, we became really wow. good friends. And, uh, and that worked because um, uh, I felt I could bring something to the lab, but definitely they were very patient with me <laughs> and taught me a lot yeah. about how the brain um, develops and how it works and a lot of very complex uh, concepts. And I always like to tell this tale that coming from a molecular biology background, and I was working, as I said, in cancer, and also a little bit of molecular immunology at some point, I was yeah. very used to sorting cells and purifying the cells, and um, and uh, uh, with, the, uh-huh. with the lack of the person that doesn't know what she's doing and not knowing the nervous system that way, <laughs> I just told Jeff, sure, we can purify all of these different neurons, what's the problem, and, and, uh, <laughs> and profile them. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand what the difficulty is <laughs> till I tried. <laughs> and two years later, <laughs> I was still there purifying these very complex, fragile neurons. So I think yeah. sometimes you need a little bit of ingenuity and, and not really knowing what you're doing to, um, to be um, a bit more adventurous and, and try. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that worked out. And so with, with Jeff, I could finally study what I always wanted to study. That's really awesome, the convergence of uh, skills and uh, long-standing interest in this great lab. Yeah, I think that if this is, uh, you told me that this podcast maybe is listened to by graduate students or maybe even undergraduate students. I think that the one thing that I would say uh, don't be afraid of is it's okay to change field, especially between a PhD and a postdoc. And if changing field means that you work on something that you always wanted to work on, it's totally worth 
worth it. Um, so it requires, you know, studying a lot the first few years and yeah. uh, really un- <laughs> accepting that you have to learn a, a thing or two. But it will be so exciting and it will be exactly what you always wanted to do. And so it's worth doing and it's not necessarily a bad decision career wise. Yeah. So, um, were you always interested in the development of the brain in particular? You mentioned development over and over again. Was yeah. the ner- nervous system and neuroscience yeah. also a longstanding motivation? It started with just development. And so for a while, maybe um, as I was doing my PhD, I still was thinking uh, that other processes of early development, for example, of early fate specification, and even at the level of gastrulation and very, very early events of development would have yeah. also interested me. Uh, I, I had an interested or interest already in stem cells and uh, pluripotency and um, this type of events. Um, but then as I began to learn more and more about the brain and thinking about, um, especially in terms of the human brain, what our brain can do and how did we evolve a system uh, and develop a system that um, is capable of such activity, um, yeah. then it became clear that if I could combine the two, I would have been quite satisfied with my choice. Yeah. Um, I knew I was walking into a very difficult field with a lot of knowledge and a lot of beautiful, elegant prior work. There was a lot to study. Uh, but again, if you're if you're interested in something, uh, the hours in the libraries go by pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so can you introduce us to the problem, um, the general problem that you began studying? So you really, in 2005, you published yeah. this really cool paper characterizing some key genes that differentiate yeah. subtypes yeah. of cortical neurons. So first, maybe at a very broad level, what is the cortex as a structure in the brain? What, why does what it all was matter, known right? in 2005 yeah. <laughs> about the cell types that composed it? And yeah. then, you know, what questions were, were yet to be answered? Yeah. So people have been fascinated with the cerebral cortex, rightfully so, forever, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> since since anybody could slice a piece of tissue and begin to uh, even at you know the at the era of Cajal and so and, and Golgi and be able to see uh, the morphology of these incredible neurons and to you know understand what the cortex was really was really doing. So there has been this fascination fascination for cortex and also for understanding the cellular composition of the cortex for a very long time. Yeah. And and it's really motivated also by the fact that it's the part of the brain that has evolved the most um, during evolution, the fastest, um, especially in recent evolution. Uh, our own cerebral cortex is a very unique space <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. is very hard to find, of course, in other animals. In fact, it's typically, you know, very, very human. It allows us to do very human type of things. So there was a lot of work that had been already done, of course, to understand the development of the cortex from early stages of neural tube closure to the formation of the telecephalic vesicles to the type of progenitors that were present, especially in the mouse cerebral cortex, to when different types of neurons would be born, where they would go in the cortex. Yeah. The connectivity of these neurons, uh, you know, had been uh, mapped uh, in quite detail. Um, we knew about the locally integrated interneurons and about that kind of diversity. So there was quite a bit of stuff known. Uh, at the molecular level, uh, lots of key players for early event of fate specification of generation of these different type of uh, classes were known. But really uh-huh. understanding 
the molecular logic that at a certain point in development uh, allows that progenitor cell to decide to make a layer 5 corticospinal neuron instead of a layer 5 corticostriatal neuron right. or a layer 6 corticothalamic neuron, um, that was really not known. And yeah. uh, um, so, so almost nothing was known about, about how mechanistically individual classes of neurons were made, but there was uh -huh. a clear understanding that had, to, that, had that, that specific question had to be answered to really get at the, at the logic of how the cerebral cortex is built, and maybe to also begin to understand the logic of evolution of this yeah. complex diversity of cells, right? Uh -huh. uh, but there was one major obstacle. We, you couldn't understand how a specific class of neuron was made unless you were able to purify the neuron out of the cerebral cortex from the hundreds of other types of cells yeah. that were present there. And I knew this pretty well because I had done a lot of molecular profiling as a PhD student. And if you have a complex tissue, also, for example, a tumor, yeah. uh, you're not going to learn very much if you take the bulk of the tissue. And the same was for the brain. So I was very lucky yeah. that with Jeff, we could apply this fact sorting approach that he had developed to study, um, 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 you know, pyramidal neurons and combine it with uh, molecular profiling. At that time, you know, these were the early days of, now it seems so easy, you just take the sample and you send it for RNA-seq, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, at that time, um, it was the early days of microarrays, which were this big thing. Yeah. I think I still have some laying around as a, as a museum piece <laughs> uh, of, yeah. of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and, and so and, but, but to do, to run a microarray, you needed like micrograms of RNA. So we had to do quite a bit of work developing yeah. amplification protocols, you know, to, um, to amplify the tiny little bit of RNA that came from these cells and, and really be able to provide it. Um, yeah. It took so, many years. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> as I understand, um, the cortex is composed of like 80% of these excitatory pyramidal cells and then yeah. the 20% interneurons. So, yeah, and then yeah, let with, me give you the landscape of that lens. Yeah. So, uh, absolutely. So, uh, there are many different classes, of course, of neurons, but they fundamentally come in two broad flavors. The excitatory neurons, about 80% of the total number of neurons of cortex, they're also called the pyramidal neurons because some of them have yeah. to tend to have this tiny, this, this defined uh, sort of triangular or pyramidal type of shape. Uh -huh. Or projection neurons, so long distance projection neurons, because these are the neurons that have these very, very long axons that uh, connect the cortex to all of the other targets within the nervous system. One sort of canonical example are the corticospinal neurons that connect the cortex to the spinal cord, right? So with yeah. these long axons could be a meter long in a human being. Wow. So those are 80% of the cells that come in many, many flavors. Yeah. And then they're all excitatory and they are uh, inhibited or I should say modulated by a rich diversity of other neurons called interneurons, cortical interneurons. These are about 20%. They're inhibitory and they make synapses on the excitatory as well as other inhibitory neurons to form the cortical microcircuitry. Right. So you need a balance there in order to keep the circuitry functional. Right. And then, uh, as you were saying, the uh, pyramidal neurons themselves are divided into these different classes based on where they send their axons. What yeah. are the main divisions yeah. there? So the main subdivision I've been known for a very long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you some example. You take layer six of the cortex and you find several classes, but there are two mains, the corticothalamic. So again, cortical thalamic, so cortex to thalamus, uh -huh. 
They come again in many colors. Uh, the callosal, uh, so from, from one hemisphere through the corpus callosum on the other side, are present in layer six. Uh -huh. uh, layer five has these subcerebral neurons, uh, which include the corticospinal neurons, which connect away from the brain, so subcerebral, so below the cerebrum. Uh -huh. uh, the spinal cord, pons, medulla, other places like that. Uh, and in the same layer, then you find the corticostriatal, which uh, have this very complex pattern of connectivity. They're very diverse. The majority of them have an axon that crosses the callosum, but they also have this collateral to the striatum, so corticostriatal. Yeah. Um, and then you begin to go enter layer four, which has very unique type of neurons. Those are uh, called stellate interneurons, but they're not inhibitory, they're excitatory. They don't send their axons very far away, they stay within the cortex. Uh -huh. And then you enter layer two, three, and that's a beautiful layer because that <laughs> yeah. is the layer <laughs> that um, is so minimal in mice, really. But if you look at the primate cerebral cortex, it has expanded dramatically during evolution. Yeah. It really contains the highest diversity of neuron type, the coolest of neurons wow. um, that in humans, you know, um, really allow us to do a lot of the associative functions that we are so good at. Um, and so there, the majority have an axons that cross the corpus callosum, but uh -huh. um, one doesn't know how many different types there are. In fact, this is the key thing. In the yeah. year 2016, nobody knows how many classes are there. there. Really? Because with all of the beautiful single-cell RNA-seq that these days people can do, with all of the high-throughput profiling that one day will allow us to sequence every single cell present yeah. in the cortex, um, we still don't know if two neurons, you know, that may have a slightly different uh, expression profile are really two different classes of neurons that do two different functional things. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating from a basic science point of view. <laughs> that is really <laughs> cool. Is. Yeah, yeah. That's an awesome overview of the uh, cortex in general. Uh, thank you. So now um, getting back to this paper. So when you first got into the MACLIS lab, you used yeah. a really cool technique to try to get at the differences uh, yeah. between these subpopulations and then find how their gene expression differed. Can you talk Absolutely. about that technique? Yeah, so um, neuroscientists yeah. had known for a while that there are particular type of dyes, tracers, that you can inject them next to where the end of the axon is, yeah. and these dyes will be selectively picked up by the axon and transported in one direction, retrogradely, from the end of the axon all the way to the cell body. Uh -huh. So what we, we knew about that, and we know also that there are some, um, these are not just the dyes, but there some, sometimes there are also tiny particles, microspheres made of latex that you can inject in the same place and for uh, some reason they get transported back to the cell body. So we knew that, and we knew that what really distinguished the canonical classes of excitatory neurons uh, where where they send their axons. And in fact, yeah. the names of these neurons, right, reflect where they send it. So the corticospinal, yeah. uh, cortico we send an axon to the spinal cord. The corticothalamic, we send an axon to the thalamus. And only a corticothalamic sends an axon to the thalamus, right? Yeah. So uh, we, um, we figure that if we could combine the two things, we could use surgery to inject these microspheres in selected places, let's say the spinal cord or the pons, and only the corticospinal neuron will, will pick them up. And now if you look in the cerebral cortex where the cell bodies are located, very far away from where you injected those beads, the only cells that would have that label would be the one that projected in that distant place in the first place. Yeah. And so 
sounds great, sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, except it requires a lot of surgery. Yeah. Um, to, to do it. So um, here is the message, yeah. I guess, again, for, for the students. I think that yeah. you always have to do what's needed to answer the question that you have. And in our case, the question is how do different classes of neurons differ from each other and develop dif differently? No? Mm -hmm. So we had to purify them. If, if that takes two years to do, it's worth doing because that's the question you're answering, right? You can try to take shortcuts, yeah. but won't lead you to the purification of the cells and then the <laughs> interpretation of the data will be much, much more difficult. Yeah. So I think if the question is valid, it's worth investing the time and do this uh, painfully sort of slow experiments to get there. And I often say in my talks that uh -huh. I never, ever, ever want to use that approach ever again <laughs> because <laughs> it's so slow and so, so uh, right. low throughput. But it was through that approach that one for the first time had a glimpse at the molecular identity of uh, a few classes of cells. And then from there, now you have genes and markers and a whole spectrum of possibilities uh, where you can use these genes, for example, to genetically label the cells and then you don't have to do surgery anymore. Yeah. So it moves the field in a way that way. Yeah. Um, and it's great to actually get this advice to you know current graduate students. <laughs> as myself and many people of our, our listeners are these um, dealing with a lot of these questions in our experiments and our careers ourselves. So that's um, great advice, and I think it certainly worked out well that you ended up having perseverance in pursuing this laborious technique because yeah. you did uh, find... Or I was these... crazy enough or <laughs> knowledgeable enough. Use whatever you got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so what were some of the key differences in gene expression that yeah. you found between the cortical spinal neurons and then these other cortical uh, so they were, of course, I mean, these are differential types, and we also remember yeah. we're profiling them by the very nature of the approach we took when they were already made. They already had to have an axon someplace in order to retrogradely label them. Yeah. And uh, um, so in a way, we were skipping at that time those very, very early days of fate specification when a progenitor comes out of the cell cycle, decides to make a specific class of cells. Um, but... Um, uh, we had very pure populations and some of the same genes that, that would be expressed early on kept being expressed at the stages that we looked at. Yeah. So um, we saw many genes being differentially expressed and there came the second challenge, which was to make sense of this um, incredible amount of, of transcriptional information that we had. Again, these were early days where the software would basically give you differential gene expression and yeah. to this day, I don't think that the software gives you much, <laughs> much more than that to really decode complex data sets. Yeah. So, uh, so maybe this is the, the other pearl of advice that I, <laughs> that I tested on my own skin, yeah. is that nobody, especially not a piece of software, uh, knows uh, as well as you do the nature of the system that you're studying. And uh -huh. so when you look at the genes, um, two genes that may be differentially expressed, you could be the one gene is differentially expressed by tenfold and another one is differentially expressed by twofold. But when you look at what that second gene does, maybe in another system, in the immune system, in, in, in the liver or whatever, and uh -huh. you'll see that this is a super powerful gene, very important for, for um, migration, for example, of cells. Yeah. And you know that that's exactly the time that you have profiled your cell. Or it's very important for the extension of processes. And you know that that's the time that your neuron is extending axons to their targets. 
then you have made some sort of unique connections that decodes that data set in a very informed type of way that uh -huh. goes beyond how many fold the financial gene expression, right? Yeah. Um, so these, even today, despite the fact that softwares can do amazing things and they can deconvolute uh, complex data sets very efficiently, um, I think there is still a role for that neuroscientist, that student that really knows mm -hmm. the biology of the cell and has a very specific question in mind. That's another important thing. Um, to go in and mine that data set to find molecules most likely to act in the context of the questions that you're asking. I think this is a key principle that yeah. <laughs> I've learned and I'm going to keep with me for a long time. So we still need humans doing science. As good, as good as computers are getting beating grandmasters and, in chess, we still need... need for a heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. Um, so uh, one of the genes that you uh, found to be really important was this gene called um, FezF2. What is FezF2 doing and how did you know, in light of what you just said, that this gene might be an important gene to uh, focus on? Yeah. So we had to make some choices about what kind of genes we were going to look at first and uh, uh, to try to find functionally meaningful molecules. And so uh -huh. um, we knew that, you know, transcription factors, of course, are a prime category, especially if you want to learn about phase specification of the cells. There were several transcription factors that came up differentially expressed. This was a particularly interesting one because of other roles that, you know, it, it had not been studied very much, I have to say, at that point. Uh -huh. But there was a mouse mutant model and there were some reagents of some type and it had been studied during, um, you know, other organs development. And so um, we decided to look at, it was among a pool of factors that we looked at. And yeah. I still remember the moment in the <laughs> in the microscope room when, well, two moments. Um, uh, the first of all, when we were sectioning this brain, and I kept thinking, why can't we section this brain? Probably they kept falling apart in some sort of way. And yeah. I had we, I mean, me and Brad Molino, we were doing things together. We must have sectioned at that point, you know, more than a thousand brains between the two of us, and we couldn't, for the life of us, get good sections out of this first young brain that we got. Then we stained and mounted it and went to the microscope room. Yeah. And we couldn't believe it. <laughs> the cells were not there. Everything else was there and the cells were not there. To the point that we, we couldn't quite process huh. what that meant <laughs> uh, at the moment. And then there was a moment yeah. where we looked at each other, they're not there. <laughs> and so Whoa. those kind of moments, um, uh, and I'll tell you then later why the section were not coming out right, but those moments, pay you back for all of those years in the dark where, uh -huh. you know, you, you wake up at 4 a.m. to go fuck sort yourselves because the machine is only available in the morning, right? right. Yeah. Three hours to dissociate the brains. Yeah. Uh, years and years of that and then um, develop protocols for RNA amplification, do the arrays, not know what to make of the data that you get. But then you get that one moment where you say, oh, <laughs> yeah. These molecules really exist. So, um, so it was funny. The reason why That's the brains amazing. were coming out funny is because this mouse also has an agenesis of the corpus callosum, and they literally the two sides of the cortex were flapping away from each other Whoa. because callosum was not there and uh, um, made a lot of sense afterwards. So we cut it differently afterwards. But <laughs> <laughs> mono was very funny. <laughs> the, the most important brain we had, we couldn't cut it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. So you uh, focus on uh, these transcription factors, and what are their roles in setting in motion this program that turns certain neurons into uh, one class that projects to the cortical spinal cord? I should tell you that uh, while this early work that we talked about so far was really fundamental to get us a little bit of that landscape of the land and have a set of molecules that could be very powerful, if nothing else, as markers of these neurons because we couldn't know, know how to recognize them. They could be genetic drivers and so on and so forth. My um, um, view today is that this system is so complex that we absolutely must move away from studying single neurons and single genes. I think that would be a mistake because although that work is powerful and very useful and eventually you'll have to concentrate on single key molecules, Uh in the process of discovery, I think you need to keep it broad and really use a systems biology almost type of approach that uh, ideally profiles multiple cell type, multiple neuron types isolated from the same cortex and multiple stages of development, but all from the same pool, right? Uh-huh. So you can capture the subtleties of what you know they are doing. You need to really profile this population, not like one population, because they are not one population, except we only know how to classify them as single population, right? But yeah. the reality is corticospinal neuron will have many, many different subclasses and the same for corticotalamic. We kind of already know that from early single cell work. And so you need to respect that. And so know that you need to insert some single cell sequencing here and there. Otherwise, you will really not understand it. And that not only transcription factor and not only RNA for all of the, you know, regulations that you can implement with with RNA, those are not the only players. These are just the players we have been technically able to look at with such a small amount of cells, right? Mm -hmm. But the technical limitation should never um, focus your vision for things and how mm-hmm. you think the system should really um, profile and, un- and understood. And so you sort of have the right vision and you wait in a way for that technology or you contribute to the development of the technology that allows you to do the, the experiments the right way. Um, so this is another important thing because it's it's easy to say, oh, well, today this is the only thing that can be done, mm-hmm. and all of you, all of us do this, right? But uh, we should also recognize what the system is and not make it simpler than what it is. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so today, um, and that's why and I'm, maybe I'll talk a little bit about this in, in my seminar, yeah. we move away from, uh, you know, low throughput labeling of projection neuron, trying to develop technology like this, uh, we develop a technology that allows us to label distinct classes of cells without having to genetically label them. And now all of a sudden you can profile and purify um, all sorts of classes of cells from the same piece of tissue um, and, wow. and really look at them. So, And then one should look at epigenetics of many different types, uh, should look at the genome of these cells. Yeah. Um, we know that the genome also is not that, you know, from recent work by Chris Walsh and Fred Gage and others, yeah. that the genome is not as, you know, uniform across different cells. And so um, we should look at certain genetic and uh, transcription and then put everything together to sort uh-huh. of get a real picture of it. So yeah. transcription factors are very important and are clearly the molecules that do a lot of the work. And so if you have to put your money on something, you'll put it on transcription <laughs> yeah. factors and chromatin modifiers, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but if you want to have over many years, maybe take your time and build a picture of how this is really built from a molecular point of view, uh, yeah. you need to keep an open vision for things. That's a good point. We now know that there uh, is yeah. now a role for non-coding RNAs in um, directing the- biological programs within cells. So yeah. Yeah. to just yeah. think about uh, yeah. everything that could um, be a part of defining a cell's identity together. Correct. Correct. This is the brain we're talking about. This is the yeah. cerebral cortex. It's not a simple tissue. Right. Um, and uh, developing that diversity of cell types cannot be done with single molecules, a simple regulatory mechanism. I yeah. would bet that everything that evolution has ever invented in terms yeah. of regulatory mechanisms is used in the cerebral cortex. <laughs> yeah. Of all places, it's going to be used there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many Absolutely. things we have not discovered yet. And so... Um, uh, I'm going to return to asking about these many genes uh, later, but now I guess I want to, uh, uh, after what you just said, now we're going to uh, focus on a single gene again, if that's okay, because I think some <laughs> okay. of your, uh, once you started yeah. your own lab, you yeah. did some really cool uh, work taking a synthetic approach to studying Correct. this natural you put uh, it down phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, where you um, overexpressed, you ectopically expressed, I should say, uh, FESF2 in two different populations of cells in 2010. Yeah. First, you express it um, in these uh, striatal progenitors, and you yeah. were able to sort of convert them to a totally different fate. How did this one gene just dramatically shift the fate yeah. of this really different progenitor yeah. population? I have been looking for that one tool for a long time. So the questions were very clear, yeah. and, uh, and are still some of the questions that drive some of the work that my lab still does. Uh, a fundamental question for me was, and it still is, of uh, you know how uh, neurons uh, that are only made during embryonic development then yeah. maintain their identity for the entire life of the organism without changing it. Uh, which, just to put things into perspective, if you think about a human being, yeah. all of the neurons of the cerebral cortex that you and I have were only made when we were in utero. But we will die, you know, 200 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. With the same neurons in our brain. Yeah. Minus the ones that we have lost because maybe we were reckless or something. But yeah. nothing is made no, afterwards. And so the idea is this is a very stable uh, identity. Uh-huh. So how is that mechanistically orchestrated while also maintaining plasticity um, you know, of, of function in, in, in the brain. And so driven by that question, you know, the dogma at that time in the field, and it's still to a certain extent is a true dogma, the dogma was that once a neuro becomes postmitotic, you're not going to change it. Uh-huh. And so in order to understand whether that was really true or not, you need to have a powerful tool to switch the identity. And because we, n- we never had known about any transcription factor that could, you know, make a corticospinal versus a callosal, for example, yeah. uh, we couldn't ask experimentally this question, although I had been interested in this for a long time. And so when FESF2 came about, and I thought that this was an opportunity to really begin to ask these fundamental questions. And so we started um, more broad and said, mm-hmm. can we go into a completely different brain region? How powerful is this transcription factor? And now you can tell from the way I'm describing this that I'm more interested in the transcription factor as a tool to answer a broader question rather than what the transcription factor does per se, yeah. right? And, um, and sometimes having this tool allow you to really experimentally ask a question that, you know, 
wasn't possible before. So yeah. we decided, so, well, would it be cool if we can put it in a different brain region in progenitor cells and completely switch them to a cortical identity? Is it even possible to make a cortical neuron in the striatum? Yeah. And uh, we thought well, it was going to be very easy because we would go just an electroporate this in the striatum. Little we knew that it was super hard to electroporate just the striatum. Uh, just <laughs> technically, the surgery is not easy. It's not like cortex. Yeah. Uh, but Caroline Rouault in my lab, very, very talented postdoc, she stuck with it for a long time. And then mm-hmm. finally, she, she got it to work. And then came the time when she did her first immuno. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. Everything had changed. The, the, not only the molecular identity, the shape and the size of the cell, uh, the axons, uh, uh, the cells were pyramidal instead of being stellate. I mean, you yeah. could look at this beautiful stellate, you know, this medium spiny neuron of the striatum have this very unique, like little stars, basically. Yeah. And now you get a triangular cell, right? Uh, right That's there. incredible. Nice and big. So that, then we knew we had a powerful tool. And then yeah. that's what we used to go into the post-mitotic neurons. Again, took a very long time. And, and it was an idea that, you know, was not very well accepted at that time. Because the dogma, again, is that you don't change post-mitotic neurons. But by doing it, I guess, one step at a time, you sort of also, you yourself, build the confidence in what, what is really possible and what is not. Nothing mm-hmm. is magic. It has to be very carefully tested. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also uh, sort of converted cortical neurons of one class to another using a similar approach of so that was the ultimate experiment like can we take the cells um, you know they they are post-mitotic they've been post-mitotic for days Um, they are in their layer and now they have their own identity with their own genes their axon has crossed the callosum can I turn on specifically FSF2 there and then again experimentally we had to be unbelievably precise and this is what took a long time the experimental setup of really making completely sure we'd be beyond any doubt that the thing was only expressed in the post-mitotic neurons that took about two years of trying different constructs different DNAs different you know systems and so really I have to give it to Caroline that stuck with (laughs) it Um, And uh, and then we did it and so that young neurons could totally do it, reprogram everything again. Now, to this day, you know, we have a a recent paper published where we see that not only the actual identity of the cell changes, but the way other cells sees them changes because the identity has changed. So you can reprogram maybe even a circuit by reprogramming the single, you know, excitatory neurons. So I think that those experiments open a, a, a field for us. Uh, a field where we thought that maybe neurons are not as immutable as we have always thought. Yeah. There are certainly tough cells to change, but we have concentrated on the toughest of them all. If the tough, toughest of them all can do it when they're young, so yeah. then 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 motivates really the awesome question: you know, can older ones do it? Yeah. Can an adult neuron in an adult brain that has been there for years mm-hmm. yeah. all of a sudden be pushed to change? It's, its identity. So this is the questions we're asking now. Um, again, I don't think, because I should tell you that this early work showed us that this capacity of neurons to respond to the single transcription factor, maybe just a factor, but uh-huh. um, decreases with time and it goes away by about P21. So okay. three weeks after birth, you're not gonna reprogram them anymore with FSF2. So okay. the question is why? But now yeah. it's perfect because I have the perfect experimental setup where I have plastic stages of the same neurons and non-plastic stages and one yeah. can really figure out um, at a basic level what changes in these neurons as they mature. That, does the epigenetic landscape change? 
do the transcription factor change? Yeah. Uh, are there regions of the genome that are not accessible anymore and now it's really locked in? Is yeah. this a, a, an irreversible process? Do they, do they lose DNA? I doubt it. But yeah. uh, is it irreversible or not? You can see that it's a fundamental question that sort of, that's my inspiration for this kind of work. Yeah. Um, but it's totally addressable with the tools that we have today. So now I think with these molecular tools, we can, we can mm -hmm. really understand it. That's so interesting to think about these neurons just switching identity. And one of the things that really um, I found most fascinating about this finding is that um, thinking about axon guidance, it's such a complicated process. And these yes. axons have to traverse such long distances in the brain. So yeah. how these colossally projecting neurons, you can then force them to become subcolossally, you know, right. subcortically projecting neurons. So right. their axons kind of go in this very long pathway in a totally different direction. How is it right. happening? Are the first axons kind yeah. of dying and then they're growing new ones or so yes. we don't know the details of exactly yeah. of the you know the processes dynamics of how this works, but I can tell you how I look at this. Yeah. So you can. Uh, uh, so we know from other work that we and others have done that um, uh, uh, the the process of imposing on a progenitor and then on an early neuroblast a certain neuronal class identity. Let's say that progenitor is becoming a corticospinal neurons. Uh -huh. In that process, it's a very complex process where you have all these transcription factors and other regulatory molecules that then activate downstream uh, genes that are very important for the acquisition of the different traits that each neuron must have, right, to, ha to have that class identity. Yeah. And so we found, for example, that there is a direct regulation by FASF2, which is the fate-specifying transcription factor, a direct regulator of, the, of some of these axon guidance molecules. Almost like you don't want to run the risk of disconnecting this process of becoming that kind of cell from the ability to send an axon down the spinal cord. Because if uh -huh. you couldn't then send that axon, you wouldn't be a corticospinal neuron. Right? <laughs> right. So I always think about these complex events, like they have to maximize the final product, which is a neuron of a certain identity with an axon in the cord. Yeah. Now, the process of axon guidance, as you correctly state, is a very complex one. It requires a lot of molecules and also requires interaction with these ligands present in the field, you know, in the territory um, that are so yeah. perfectly placed there during development. So the axons sort of turn the right way and make the right connections and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. but, but, but then as this nervous system develops, the specificity of distribution of these molecules uh, is not there anymore. The molecules may still be there, but they're not as precisely distributed because after all, the nervous system has been wired already, right? Yeah. So how do you deal with that? So meaning that even if the set is perfect and it has the perfect axon guidance receptors, the territory is not there to guide it to the right target, right? Uh -huh. um, it is possible that they may bundle with uh, some residual you know, axons of a certain identity and just and, and just go there. But if mm -hmm. we think about this in the context of a of a re, not regenerative but maybe reparative uh, process, which mm -hmm. is uh, another fundamental reason why we do uh, these reprogramming experiments, because if one day this moved from being a proof of principle to actually being able to efficiently reprogram the identity of neurons, you can imagine that you could replace a small percent of a specific class of neurons that might be affected in a disease that would die mm -hmm. with neighboring neurons that are resistant to that genetic mutation or, or uh, disease uh, and you just take a few from here and you and you 
turn them into the class of neurons that you are really missing. And, yeah. and, and this may have really uh, potential, you know, um, beneficial effect. So the turning of right. the axon is very, very clear when the cell is still young and an axon has not cl- crossed the corpus callosum yet. It's still descending and now it has to make a decision. Am I going this way to the corpus callosum? Am I going this way to the spinal cord? And so, uh-huh. and so <laughs> the, um, when you do this experiment early on, uh, they basically they, they go they go to the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. If you now repeat this experiment when the axons have already crossed the corpus callosum, it's impossible to think that they would retract, for example, and extend in a new direction because now you have a cell that has been already connected someplace, and there are a lot of repulsive signals that will tell that axon that, you, know, you cannot recross back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that for this to become one day a real therapeutic option. If we have to rewire long distance connections, we need to combine uh, this type of biology with more of a bioengineering type of approach that would literally guide axons to where they have to go. And so these I don't think can be done by simply imposing the right identity on the cell Mm -hmm. because the environment matters too. And so uh, I think that we need to engineer in there some molecule sensitive to specific um, either ligands or non-invasive, I'm thinking light or something like mm-hmm. that, that would allow the axons to be guided. So you have to combine the wow. two. You make the right cell type and then you guide the axons where it should go. This is just speculation and science fiction, of course. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, but it's uh, great to think about. So. Can you um, then talk about more about some of the specific disease implications of uh, this yeah. reprogramming work and also just the basic biology that your lab is doing and some of the uh, specific diseases that you uh, think might right. be uh, one day um, amenable to therapies? Yeah. So if we think about reprogramming, the first type of disease, of course, that come to mind are the neurodegenerative ones, right? right. Where you have lost a certain set of cells. I'm thinking, for example, ALS in the cerebral cortex. Not all of the pyramidal neurons will die, although, you know, we we don't have a full understanding of exactly, you know, what is the spectrum of death there, but there are mm-hmm. clearly the, the subcerebral neurons of layer 5B are the most susceptible to to ALS. So what if we could turn some of the neighboring corticostriatal or callosal neurons yeah. that already have some features of the of corticospinal neuron, for example, they can stand axons very far away. They can they have the same uh, neurotransmitter. They are positioned roughly in the same way. They send axons to the same layers, although the you know, sorry, dendrites to the same layers, although you know the shape and everything is different. So some features are already there. Uh, yeah. Would that make for a better corticospinal neuron if the starting cell was its cousin instead of a of an embryonic stem cell that is as far as can be? So I think that, that, that if the process of reprogramming, the identity of a, of, a, of a neuron can be achieved in the adult, then that becomes a real serious possibility. And yeah. my guess would be that the cell one makes might be actually better than what one can make from um, a pluripotent stem cell simply because the two cells are more related and half of the job has already been done by nature. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a So that's, that really would be cool the vision. Thought. Or where this will go. So in terms of diseases of interest, we yeah. have recently actually become very interested in also in, uh, in neuropsychiatric and neurodevelopmental uh, diseases. Uh-huh. Uh, these are diseases that fascinate us a lot because they have oftentimes a developmental component. So it has to do with development. 
uh, oftentimes um, the cortex is affected and not in a sort of uh, very precise way, but in a very complex sort of way. Again, I'm a little bit attracted to these complex systems and, yeah. and figuring out, uh, you know, complex cellular interactions. Um, circuits don't work very well, and we really don't understand very much about it. The yeah. state of the field in terms of treatments and, uh, and, and really understanding of the disease is still at the beginning. So there is a lot of space for a lot of us to maybe make uh, some some contribution, and and the diseases are, are very, are really devastating. So um, mm -hmm. I uh, I think I've, we've been very very interested in in going into this direction. We have begun to go into this direction. There, I think more than reprogramming, it would be important to uh, generate some models of cortex that one can study in high throughput. And so uh -huh. maybe I'll talk about a little bit in my, in my uh, seminar about the generation uh, of uh, human um, um, cerebral cortex-like tissue uh, in, in 3D organoids that may be, you know, uh, interesting to, um, to understand how circuits yeah. form, how the formation of circuits might be affected, human circuits, right, may be affected in, uh, in, in the presence of a specific mutation in a system that is amenable to high throughput so that one could actually use it as a therapeutic platform for screening. Um, yeah. I think that uh, part of what we will be doing in the next several years is to build on this knowledge of how cortex develops in vivo in the mouse to try to understand whether we could help build models of cortical development in the dish uh, that may be meaningful for, for understanding and, and developing treatments for these diseases. Uh, we're very excited about it. That sounds incredibly uh, exciting. And so lastly, you, you uh, actually mentioned a couple times that uh, some things you were going to talk about in your seminar. Uh, Is there <laughs> anything that you want to add to entice our listeners <laughs> yeah. to uh, come to the it's seminar? Hard to, I mean, we never know what we're going to talk about until that day, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, so um, I always like to start with an overview of what the cortex is and why does it fascinate us so much and what, why is it so important to look at and understand cortical development and defining those basic rules of engagement that allow all these cells to be made and, in, and interact with each other in meaningful circuits. Um, and then uh, consider this idea uh, of um, you know, why we study this diversity and the impact of this diversity on the behavior of other cells, diversity of pyramidal neurons on the, on the behavior of other cell types always during cortical development. Yeah. Maybe uh, I'll talk a little bit about the interaction between neurons and oligodendrocytes to control proper myelination of cortex. And then I'd like to end with something that is either about reprogramming and newer work that we have done there, or maybe mention a little bit these models. I'll have to decide. It seems that there is a lot of interesting in reprogramming, so maybe maybe that's that's what we can talk about and also uh, show you some some newer data on how we we are uh, approaching this you know this 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 question of understanding how mechanistically neurons maintain their identity and whether we can break those boundaries and barriers to reprogram the adult brain. So. Uh, I guess it's going to be that. <laughs> sounds like it's going to be a very exciting talk. Um, so uh, lastly, right before we uh, conclude the interview, yeah. we uh, just like to ask a couple rapid fire questions. And these are yeah. meant to be fun, lighthearted, and very you know quick. So answer at yeah. the, whatever comes <laughs> up to the top of your mind. So the first thing we like to ask is if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, um, Paola Orlota, as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself? 
to be a little bit more daring, um, uh, to be more adventurous. And uh -huh. uh, um, it took me a little while to, to see how fun it is when you when you sort of go outside that box and, uh, and you just let it be and follow your ideas. That's great yeah. advice. Second, so Ramoni Cajal could be the most cited person in every neuroscience talk. And I think I've even um, talked about him and I study worms. So you study like the diversity of cortex. What percentage of talks do you think you have given him <laughs> at least one Cajal. mention? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so surprisingly so, I, I have mentioned Cajal several times of course yeah. uh, I also like this uh, you know the Kahal Golgi uh, uh, competition and and the Golgi staining and I'm uh -huh. Italian right. <laughs> so I talk about Golgi as well and how that staining yeah. enabled really um, some of the beautiful work that Kahal does so that's very important and it's very important to give credit where credit is due and since Kahal many 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 other people have contributed to this field so that's extremely uh, important yeah. um, and then build on that to also though, give a projection of the future what what can we do now to change what you know uh, what can the Kahals of today do to really right. change this field so that there'll be in talks later on in life <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so then you are originally from Italy. What is um, one thing you miss about Italy and or one thing that you have learned to love about Boston? Uh, I miss um, long coffee breaks at the perfect cafe in the square with friends. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. you talk uh, about everything from politics to, to, to poetry to science uh, and the coffee uh, stands the Test of quality. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, Boston is, is beautiful and it's my, really my second home and I would say my first home now. Yeah. Uh, it has amazing things. The coffee is okay, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my yeah. standards are high. Um, so yeah. what have I learned to uh, love about Boston? I love this uh, academic community. Um, I love my colleagues and how a lot of these searches are really driven by um, through academic interest and uh, also uh, the capacity of meeting these very interesting people from outside of my field, from the humanities, from philosophy. I think it, it enriched me so immensely. So my friends and my colleagues are um, quite amazing. Um, and I'm sure I can find them in many other cities in the US, but Boston has sort of gifted me with, with them. Mm -hmm. um, I have never gotten used to the weather. Never ever <laughs> will get used to the weather. I don't blame <laughs> you. Shoveling of the snow. Yeah. Uh, very pretty, but it's tough. But yeah. the summers are beautiful, and so yeah. it's a, it's a beautiful, welcoming city where I find everything I kind of like, and I can also do the science I want. So I'm sort of grateful for that. That's awesome. <laughs> Minus the snow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final final question is. What is your favorite neuronal subtype in cortex, if you can ah. choose among the diversity? <laughs> what are you talking about? We haven't discovered it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. I've been in the upper layers, but we haven't found it yet. <laughs> okay. Maybe we're looking at the wrong cortex. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll stay tuned. Exactly. All right. Um, Thank you right. so much for speaking with me. This is really you're a pleasure. Very welcome. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for doing this. And thank you all for listening. 
Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Ada Yee, Luis Giam, Eddie Albron, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle, at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk. I'm David Lipton.